Welcome to episode two of the Great Lakes Horror Company. Uh, today we're going to be talking about women in horror. We're going to break this discussion into two parts, but first we're going to go around the table and introduce ourselves. I am Andrew Robertson, aspiring horror writer, and up next we have... Hi, I'm Monica S. Kubler, managing editor of Rumorg Magazine and author of the online serial The Blood Magic Saga. Hi, I'm Suffer Jerome, and I'm the Ontario chapter head of the Horror Writers Association and uh, the author of several horror novels, the new series coming out, Witch Upon a Star. Hi, I'm Suzanne Church, and I'm the author of Soul Larcenist, book one in the Dagger of Sacerdos trilogy from the Ed Greenwood Group. Hi, I'm Bill Snyder, author, poet, and host of a radio show, After Up. Okay, so that's our uh, our panelists for this episode. So February's Women in Horror Month, and uh, as I mentioned, we're going to break this into uh, two episodes. So in part one, we're going to be talking about the experience of being a woman who writes horror. Um, I'm going to kick it off with a quote from Bella Lugosi. I'm sure uh, a big fan favorite. And he said. It is women who love horror, gloat over it, feed on it, are nourished by it, shudder and cling and cry out and come back for more. So with that in mind, positioning ourselves, let's start this discussion with the question, do we need Women in Horror Month? Yes. Yes, I want to Suzanne. say yes. Uh, I think the reason we need Women in Horror Month is the same reason that often we need to point to women in, in many fields that have been male dominated in the past and it doesn't mean that we're not equal now but it means that there's a certain underlying diligence involved where we're saying let's not forget to be sure that things are equal let's just touch that stone one more time and say we want women to be equal we want women to be included we want women to be talked about we want these books to get read we want people to think about the characters that were created in these stories and just in case we forgot to think about them here's a chance to go back and touch that again now do we have any counterpoints or do we have full agreement i feel like we don't have full agreement i know you can't see their faces but i can well, uh, this is Sephra speaking. I, it's funny because when the concept of Women in Horror Month first came out, I was really against it because I felt like it was just another form of segregation for women and we're already being patted on the head and told we're nice and all that. Um, but now things have changed. Even in, it's, I think Women in Horror Month's only been a few years, right? About four or five years. It's all seven years, I'm being told. Um, and a lot has actually changed in the last seven years. And it seems like um, women are going backwards, women's rights, women's acknowledgments. Um, you know, I look at what's happening in the States because we're sitting here in Canada and Toronto, and it, it is actually a bit of a different world than what's happening in the U.S. And now I'm thinking, yeah, uh, at least the people in the States probably need a Women in Horror Month because it seems like women are slowly becoming second-class citizens again for some reason. Um, so I'm willing to ride the ride of Women in Horror Month. I'm absolutely happy to talk about womanly things and all that. But uh, to me, at the end of the day, when I'm reading a book, I want a damn good story. I want one that scares the hell out of me, and I don't care who's written it. I think we need it, too. And I think we need it because there's still too many people out on the Internet you know, saying things like, I've never read a good horror novel by a woman. 
So I think we need to, you know, point people to those novels that they should be reading and that they may have overlooked because there's a woman's name on the cover and maybe, you know, they've had some previous experience with some novel that they didn't like and then they maybe went back to, you know, the standard male-authored novel and didn't go back and try another one. So, I, you know, I think that if it's getting books into people's hands and it's exposing people to authors that they may have not been exposed to and, you know, exposing certain readers to, uh, to women authors who write hard horror, you know, there's women writing all different kinds of horror out there. And I think sometimes that's lost because I think sometimes a lot of people out in the world think, oh, it's women, they're writing paranormal romance. Uh, it, while we're talking about women in horror, I'm sure everyone talks about this in Women in Horror Month. It's probably been talked to to death. But the whole idea of Mary Shelley being one of the first kind of recognized horror writers at all, and she was a young woman, like 18 or something, and uh, when she wrote Frankenstein, it was first published anonymously, uh, not as a woman or a man, but it was anonymous. And then once it uh, became a bestseller, uh, then her name was put on it. I believe it was published by her father because he had a publishing company. Um, so to me, I always feel like, you know, women are pretty scary, and I'm not sure why there's this idea that women's horror isn't as scary as men's, which is why I think we had the whole Women in Horror Month kind of thing invented to show that, no, we are here, we're scary, uh, just as much as men. And I know Women in Horror Month doesn't only just include writers, but it's everywhere. It's like, I know in the film business, uh, women directors are having a hell of a time being recognized these days. And for actresses, there's the ageism problem. And so I think Women in Horror Month does bring a lot of these ideas to the forefront, um, hopefully getting people to speak about things more than just... Uh, it seems like whenever people have things to say about women being snubbed, it's always around things like the Academy Awards or all these award systems, whereas Women in Horror Month, it gives us a month just to kind of discuss all these ideas without it being pinned to anything in particular. That, that is an interesting point that... Uh that you made Monica and Sephra, because when we look at the idea that, that women write romantic horror, that it's, that it's witches falling in love with vampires, which there's nothing wrong with, but in, you know, in evidence, that's, that's a romantic novel. But if you look at some of the female driven anthologies, uh, like Cheryl Molyneux's, uh, sick things and vile things, you're dealing with extreme creature terror in those that some, male and female horror writers wouldn't necessarily take to those extremes. Um, so I think that you, you do have some breakthroughs. It's just a matter of, of what recognition that they're getting. Um, so in terms of advantages or disadvantages coming up, have any of you found, or, or in the case of Bill, seen uh, someone either get an advantage or a disadvantage based on being a woman writer? I've never seen it, so I, I don't really can't speak to that as far as how that works. Um, for me personally, I always generally, if it's a good book, it's a good book. I don't care who's writing it, uh, as long as it's an author I can appreciate and go forward with. Um, but I don't actually see that happen as it is. I hear about it every once in a while from people who say that it happens, but that's about the most that I get to hear about it. So Women in Horror as a month, as a showcase... 
for where the shortfall is occurring is probably a good thing because it highlights where the, um, the, the distinguished differences occur. And I think the social thing keeps pushing it forward to make it much more easier to deal with. I think that the whole gender issue about what creates creativity is very difficult to get past for some people. And I think a lot of people need to just relax and enjoy what's being created as opposed to worrying about who created it, how it was created. It is it is sort of funny because when you look at it from you know nascent psychology or if you look at what Freud was talking about, if you believe what Freud said, men were terrified of women, period. They were certain that a vagina was going to come along and eat up their penis and destroy them as a man. So it begs the question, why couldn't a woman be just as horrific in her creations as as what presumably you know the larger stereotype is that it's a man's realm and that that men are the creative force behind behind what's so horrific and that women have a lighter touch um did anyone else want to speak to advantages or disadvantages before we look at the next um i i would like to say in my own personal experience within the genre like as in working with editors um i have never experienced that i know of any bullshit or you know like oh I have to get laid to get a book deal or any I've never had any of that and um like I came from it and maybe I think it comes from my upbringing because my parents uh weren't you know mom wasn't just a girl and dad wasn't just a guy like you know dad would cook mom would you know shovel the snow like they, they were inter you know like nowadays it's more normal that uh, people share the roles, but they, I had that growing up back in the sixties. So to me, it was like, I want to grow up and be a horror writer, which I knew from a young age. And so I just went and did it and it never occurred to me not to, (laughs) but of course we didn't have internet and stuff then either that was telling me I couldn't. So I just went and did it and I just submitted stories and I got published. And to me, it was no big deal. I didn't see what the big deal was. However, outside of the genre, outside of the people who have employed me and, and helped me and, um, you know, pushed my work. When I'm sitting in a bookstore um, with a pile of books that are obviously horror books, I, it's amazing to me um, how general attitudes can be. Oh, you don't write scary stuff, or how can your stuff be scary? Oh, is this romance? Or, you know, women don't write scary. And I hear all this crap when I'm sitting at this table, and it's, and it's mind-blowing to me because I'm like, you know, I'm wearing black. I, my book cover's kind of scary. Uh, you know, I just, I just, you know, it, it just blows my mind. Like, why wouldn't I be scary? Have you not seen a PMS woman looking for something? You know, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, like, hello. <laughs> very much like you, Sephra. I haven't experienced it within the horror genre. I've been very lucky. Rue Morgue is an awesome place to work. And there have been times where I have been the only girl in the office, but, you know, I've just been one of the gang and it's never really made me feel like I've stuck out. But I will say that um, being someone who writes about horror and writes horror, I've had people who are not in the genre say to me, wouldn't you rather write like autobiographies or something nice? And Mm -hmm. I remember when I got pregnant with my daughter, there, uh, there were several people who commented who were very surprised that I was going to keep my career in horror after giving birth, which I thought was ludicrous. I mean, it's 2016. Why can't I be a career woman and have a family at the same time? So I have seen it in other aspects of the world, but it hasn't really affected me in genre. 
That's that's actually a very interesting comment because today when I was looking, um, I was actually looking up quotes related to women in horror and an abundance of the complaints coming from female authors, directors, artists was the, but you're a mother, but you're a woman. How mm -hmm. could you possibly write or think about these things? Actually, well, all three of us are mothers I, here. Yes, and I, I was going to say... I've, I've experienced it from both sides of the table. I've, I have done the stay-at-home mom routine where you are the mom that pushes the buggy or pushes the wagon to school and you're standing around the front of the school with all the other moms who are dropping their children off at kindergarten and having that conversation of, oh, you know, what does your husband do? Oh, you know, what does your, you know, you, you're just a stay-at-home mom, right? And, and I would say things like, well, I am technically a stay-at-home mom, but I also write. And, oh, what do you write? And they have that, that, that happy look on their faces where they expect you to say something like biographies or cookbooks or something. Books and then about you, turtles. And then you say horror, and their face changes. Oh, yeah. And suddenly they think, but, but... And, and they, sometimes they don't even have an answer after that. It's like somehow they cannot possibly imagine that a mother could go home and write horror for a living. And I think that, I don't know if I would call that a disadvantage. It's more like an overall just societal expectation. There's a certain amount of conservatism that happens in the world. And a certain number of people that assume that women take that sort of gentle nurturing role of making sure little Susie has her hair braided and and little Billy has his you know shoes polished or whatever it is and that you wouldn't possibly then sit down in front of your computer and write a scene where someone is horrifically chopped into tiny little pieces and fed to the wolves and then they, they think somehow that if you write that at night you can't possibly then tuck your children in and sing them a song because you know it's it's impossible and that sort of blows my mind because, quite honestly, giving birth is one of the most horrifying <laughs> experiences. That's for sure. Particularly for me. I mean, both me and my daughter nearly died in childbirth, mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, there are certain experiences that are, you know, solely female experiences that are very frightening and very horrific. And, you know, I'm not saying a man can't write about those experiences, but he'll never experience them the same way a woman will. Oh, I totally Absolutely. agree. Just try having 56 stitches. <laughs> I was going to say that along that lines, and it's not necessarily the female-male versus thing, just writing horror as soon as you start wrapping that out, most people seem to think an attach. Okay, if you've just written about somebody chopping up a bunch of body bits, you must actually feel that way. And the reality is, no. It's just expressing a story. Whether it's about something as gross or gruesome as that, or something as nice and fluffy as bunnies or whatever. And like, you know, a lot of people say, when, if you ever go to a horror convention, it's the funniest time you'll ever have, because horror writers are like a bunch of comedians. And I think because we get our horror out on the page, whether we're men or women, we get our crap out. So we are allowed to, you know, we, we have more mental brain space to laugh at things and have fun and enjoy life, I think. Our darkness goes into our writing, not into our day-to-day -day existence. Yeah, we're not exactly. serial killers. We just write about it. See, it's, it's absolutely healthy. Now, let, let me take us to that world of conventions, um, interacting with fans, because you all have fans of, of you as female writers, 
except for Bill, as a male writer. <laughs> <laughs> Just going to say. So what have been some of the fan reactions to your work? Because I think when, when we look at Women in Horror Month and we're, we're thinking about the adversity that women face, but we should also be celebrating like they do, uh, the fandom. So what are the, some of the fan reactions to what you've put out there? Well, I remember once a couple of years ago, I was reading one of my short stories at a convention, and it was one of the more gruesome, horrific short stories I'd ever written. It was science fiction, but it also had horror elements. And uh, there were only three or four people in the audience, and, and two of them were young women. And I asked them before I started reading, I said, you know, is everyone in the room okay with a little bit of gore? Oh, yeah, sure. And and one of them said, well, maybe just a little. And I said, well, I'll, I'll keep an eye on you, and if I... It looks like you're in trouble. I'll stop. And the further along <laughs> I went into the story, the paler and more frightened and, let's say, terrified that this, this one, one audience member appeared. And it got to the point where I said, okay, I think I'd better stop. <laughs> but ironically, that story, if you can make it to the end, past all of the gore, is, is probably one of the most heart-wrenching love stories I've ever written as well and it's odd that you can mix those two people don't believe that you can actually oh, mix can. <laughs> love and 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 you know dismemberment but it is <laughs> it is possible so Sephra in in your world of women taking apart other people to reassemble them into your ideal lover what kind of fan reactions have we gotten to that oh. <laughs> I've had that most of them have been pretty positive but I have had a couple of people write me and tell me, you know, I'm horrible. Uh, and I had one person uh, who was going to have me on as a guest on his blog, but he started reading it, um, Captured Souls. Uh, and he said he had to stop reading at this certain spot and he will not have me on his blog because I'm too disturbing for his people. Well, luckily um, you have your own podcast. So. Damn right. <laughs> yeah. Right yeah, man. You know, but to me, that's like, yeah, I did my job. I'm good. You know, like, <laughs> I, you know, if I disgust people, I've done my job and I'm, I'm happy about well, that. And if a woman can't write horror, apparently you proved that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> now, Monica, I think that you have a, a specific view into the YA community because you've been heavily involved with Wattpad. Mm -hmm. uh, which is such an interactive community where you can get amazing feedback and it actually works as sort of a content development tool for for you as you're creating. So in terms of interactions with, with your fans, uh, what have you experienced? I've been very lucky. Most of my fans have really enjoyed the work, although, you know, I sometimes think because I write vampire fiction, some people come in thinking that it is the Twilight-esque vampire fiction. <laughs> And then, you know, suddenly we've got maggots crawling in wounds and all sorts of really messed up stuff, you know, um, vampire, human cattle farms and whatnot. And suddenly they're in a different world where there is no happy endings because if you're going to get with a monster, monstrous things are going to happen. But at the same time, those same readers come out at the end of the book and they go, that was really refreshing because a lot of YA is still pandering towards paranormal romance and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is, there is really some really cool horror YA out there, but it's not as big of a market as, you know, the paranormal romance or other form or the dystopian right now or other forms of YA. So less sparkling vampires. Yeah, they definitely don't sparkle. actual vampires. So now I think Bill's going to take us into our interview segment for this week. Well, that's about all we have time for in part one of our discussion on Women in Horror Month. 
Up next, we have Andrew Robertson in a special interview for Women in Horror Month with Montreal-based author and award-nominated Mistress of the Dark, Nancy Kilpatrick. This is Andrew Robertson, and I'm speaking with Nancy Kilpatrick on the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast. Nancy Kilpatrick is a prolific Mistress of the Dark with 18 novels, over 200 short stories, six collections of stories, one nonfiction book, comic books, and a graphic novel coming out this month for February. Welcome to the podcast, Nancy. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It's nice to be here. Now, I think one of the most exciting things... uh, coming up for you right now is your award nomination. You're on the preliminary ballad for the anthology Nevermore. Can you tell us a little bit about that anthology and what our listeners could expect to see if they were to pick up a copy? Yeah, uh, Nevermore is uh, my 15th anthology, actually, that I've edited. And uh, this one's co-edited with Caro Souls. What it is, of course, from you, you can tell from the title, it's an homage to Edgar Allan Poe. So mm-hmm. the people wrote stories for it. They've all been inspired in some way by Poe, and they love Poe, as do most you know, dark fantasy horror writers and people that are in the mystery field, because Poe is known specifically for those, those types of uh, genres. But uh, yeah, so the stories are... Some of them are riffs on Poe stories. Others are stories that are nothing like a Poe story in the sense that it's not based on a Poe story, but it has that feel and that mood to it that is a Poe story. So, yeah, that's what it's about. I think all of us are pretty familiar with that sort of dread that Poe brought to horror. So I'm sure that's a very exciting anthology that I'm going to pick up soon. Now, uh, the Stoker Awards. Can, some of our readers may not be familiar with that. And as a longtime member of the Horror Writers Association, can you give them a sense of, of what the awards are and what the prestige attached to that is? Well, the awards are for excellence uh, in different categories. So they have novels, first novels, they have short stories, collections. Uh, Nevermore is in the anthology category. And we're at this point at the preliminary ballot, which is really um, one of the first things that happens. So it's uh, generally the members of the organization recommend works, and there are also juries that submit works. And so a selection and a kind of a shorter list is created. Um, And then those works that are on the shorter list are on the preliminary ballot. After that, the active members who are the, what you'd call professional members who are having professional incomes out of, well, income, this is writing, Uh, you know, they get professional rates. Uh, Those people get to vote on the preliminary ballot and whatever works are selected, get onto the final ballot. So, uh, and then the final ballot, of course, is where people are voting for the winner. So the Stokers have been around for a long time. Um, It's not that usual for anybody in Canada to get on to any of the ballots. I've been on the preliminary ballot a few times. I've been a finalist three times. It's very hard to do because, um, you know, the organization is worldwide, but the membership outside the U.S. is very small. So um, basically, you know, people read works that are available in their bookstores or that are you know, familiar to them, names that are familiar. So um, it's quite an honor to be there on the preliminary ballot. And uh, we'll see where it goes, if it goes anywhere. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it just a way of saying that uh, enough people think that Nevermore has some value to it. Now, February is also Women in Horror Month. Um, and 
a great time to support female authors. Uh, but how do you feel about Women in Horror Month? Is that something that you think is necessary in the genre to bring uh, light to some of the female authors and what is often seen as a typically male-dominated realm? I think for the horror realm, yes, it is necessary, which is sad to say. But uh, if you look in the mystery realm, there are an awful lot of women writers and there are a lot at the top that are best-selling authors. Uh, you know, there's there's Patricia Cornwell for one and Anne Perry. There's tons of them. Uh, Kathy Reichs. So, you know, they, these people, they're New York Times best-selling authors. They have the big contracts, the big bucks. Uh, you get the same thing. Well, in the fantasy realm, there's a lot of women write fantasy. A lot of women get to the top. I can mention many other genres. Um, of course, the romance genre is one where there's a lot of women and there's a lot of men writing as women under <laughs> pen names. Horror <laughs> is just one of those worlds that has always, for some reason, been classified as a boy's realm. I don't know why, because there were studies done in the 90s. There was an editor who uh, did a study back then, Jean Cavellos, who was editor at Dell. And uh, her study determined, she did a survey, that actually most of the readers of horror were middle-aged women, which surprised everyone because most people thought it was these pimply-faced 18-year-old boys. And and somebody actually said, well, gee, if all these young boys are reading horror, isn't that great that they're reading? But, of course, that's, you know, there's a difference in what type of material is read. Horror comics are one thing, graphic novels, uh, you know, horror movies are another thing. So... Uh, you can have people interested in the genre of all ages, but it depends who your target audience is. And there is are different types of horror anyway. There's graphic horror and there's visceral horror and there's psychological and so on and so forth. Different aspects of it appeal to different people. So the bottom line for me is that because it's considered to be a kind of a guy's genre, if you will, and because a lot of the major anthologies do not have very many, if any, women uh, who are have stories in the anthologies. And women don't usually rise to the top of the horror genre in terms of if you if you think of the top writers in the field, you can go through a list that includes people like Stephen King, uh, Robert McCammon, Clive Barker, Neil Gaiman, and so on. And then you get Anne Rice stuck up there because she's written the vampire books, right? And that puts her in the multi-million dollar range too. But apart from her, who who else is there? There are lots of women that write horror that have some following, but um, who is at that very top, that very pinnacle, if that's where you want to get to and if that's what you're aiming for. Um, and what it really says is that it's hard for women to rise in this particular realm. So I think we need that women in horror thing, at least for a while until something changes. I mean, I have personal stories, I think everybody does, of, of people saying to me, about a, uh, I, I remember this one magazine uh, I was in just a couple of years ago. I won't mention it, but the uh, the editor said to me when I sent in the stories and very visceral, hard edge story, very violent and physical. And it's not what the only thing I write. I have like a big realm of types of writing that I do, but this particular one fit that realm. And uh, he he said to me with awe in his voice. I had no idea women could write this stuff. And I thought, well, I guess you're not reading anything because, you know, lots of women write this stuff. I know lots of women who write in the field and they do, they can write this stuff. You know, they can write also psychological horror. They can write crossovers between other genres. I mean, there's lots of things that can happen in, in writing. So, um, 
but for some reason, women are perceived as being kind of softer and they can't possibly write anything too vicious or too mean or too, you know, aggressive and whatever. But of course, women can. So I guess we need women in horror for a while to get the idea out that women are actually capable of writing horror in the big sense of the word. Those, those are interesting comments because as a part of the podcast uh, crew's discussion on women in horror, those same issues were identified where it was, oh, but you're a mother, you're a daughter, you're a woman. How could you write these awful, awful things? Oh, yeah. And I've had people say to me, book signings, you look too nice to write horror. <laughs> as if that has anything to do with it. You know, it's writing is a creative endeavor. That's what we do. We use our imaginations to come up with stories and it has nothing to do with whether you're a mother or a grandmother or a nice person or whatever so yeah just a lot of preconceptions i think uh that women in horror month points to the fact that women have to work in different ways to promote themselves so for for some of our listeners that are looking to get started um, and especially considering the glut of illegal downloading or file sharing, and now we have ebooks as well as print. What are some of the best ways that you've found to promote yourself and your work um, and, and to actually get books into hands of the people that, that are interested to, for your audience? Well, you know, things have changed a whole lot in this business in the last 15, 20 years. And I'm old <laughs> because I'm older. I was around earlier. I was around in the late 80s and through the 90s. And I built up a following of readers during that time and into the 2000s. I honestly, like a lot of people, do not know what to do today to promote anything. I just ride on my reputation a lot. I post things on Facebook. I post things on Twitter. I put, Well, my poor website has not been updated in about three years, but normally I used to do that. Uh, I try to get reviews like everyone else. Um, but, you know, I just don't know what to tell you because I don't think anyone knows. I mean, I talk a lot about this with other writers and they have no idea either because everything's so much in flux, you know, and, and what appears to work doesn't necessarily work because on a, a social media place like Facebook or Twitter, you have all kinds of people jumping in and say, Oh my God, I love that. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that. The sales do not verify that. You know, they just don't. People, people are happy to say yes. They're happy to say I'll be there. They're happy to, you know, just jump in at the moment because it's a momentary thing. So I'm not really clear myself on how valuable social media is. It doesn't mean I don't keep talking about myself like every other writer. You know, you get on and you say, okay, I did this. I sold this. This is coming out, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, whether that actually has an effect, I don't really know anymore. Honestly, I, I don't have an answer for you. I wish I did know. I wish I had some gem to pass along and say, I know that this works. I don't. I really don't. And if anybody else does, I'm happy to listen. I completely understand. Uh, I was managing an online record label for a while. And despite having 5,000 streams of a song, you would sell maybe 12 copies of it. And so the, the representation of success on the outside, you know, what, what you see with likes and hits and streams and, and people talking online does not always translate into sales for the artist, which I think is something that everyone needs to be very aware of when you're, when you're looking at writers, especially, you know, songwriters or writers, 
they're all mostly independent artists now, I think. Would you would you say that's a, a valid statement? Well, I think that a lot of people are. I mean, the trouble with being an independent is, and this is compared to the past, of course, you don't have any machine behind you, meaning in, in writing you don't have the publishing industry behind you. When you had in the past um, a mainstream publisher, if you were publishing a novel or I was publishing a novel, uh, they never really did a whole lot of promotion, but they did some. You know, They would put ads occasionally here and there. Uh, they would make sure the books were out. They would make sure the print run was good. If you're doing it yourself, I have not self-published, so I don't have an answer to anybody who is self-publishing because I don't, it must be horrifying is all I can say. (laughs) But, you know, the publishers that I go through often now are not the huge publishers because they have really severely cut back on the number of books that they publish and who they publish. They're focusing exclusively on people that sell big numbers, huge numbers. So uh, this was all predicted back in the 80s by my then agent, how this would turn into the the few people at the top doing the um the the you know the huge sales and got the huge advances and then this mound of people at the bottom and the whole mid list would be cut out which is where most writers used to end up in the mid list meaning that you would publish a book it would make some sales it wouldn't even necessarily make back the advance or it might just make back the advance but the publisher was behind you and they were helping you build a career because they thought okay you've got potential we'll do another book that doesn't exist anymore and people who stay with the same house it's really rare so um yeah i don't know what you do if you're by yourself if you're just doing your own thing hopefully you have you know a cadre of you know a thousand friends around you to help you promote things um the small publishers they have limited budgets what they can do and so you know they're they're promotion is not going to be extensive they might if you're lucky you might get some bookmarks out of them (laughs) that's about it (laughs) so uh but a lot of the work has always had to be done by the writer him or herself and more so than ever now is there anyone helping anyone i do not know i'm sorry to sound you know incompetent about this but things have changed dramatically and like everyone else who talks about this there's no real sense of of what's going on or how to how to deal with it it's vast it's confusing um it's hard to get yourself out there when every month for example in the horror field you know there might be 50 to 500 new books out there every month depending you know and many of them are self-published self-publishing has a bad rep because some of them are not done well they're not edited uh they they're poorly written and so on but some of them are okay but how do you weed through all of this to get to anything that's really worth reading that's good i don't know so um people i think a lot of times do fall back on the the known entities and that's kind of natural in a way it's like with everything else in the world you you're satisfied with something you keep going back to it and people who have taken a chance on downloading all those free books that you know everybody's been offering for a couple of years take my book for free or for 99 cents those books yeah they end up with thousands of them on their readers and then they look at them and they just never look at them again there's some interesting studies done that i could don't you probably don't have the time to hear about the good one <laughs> we hey we could break this into two parts <laughs> <laughs> well i actually i should uh you know there was a study done by um kobo 
and uh, they were they were offering books, uh, a free book of a writer who had done a number of books. So they had many of these, many of these writers. And so they often were in the romance field, but in other fields, too. And so they'd offer the first book for free. And then you get that book. And then uh, the idea was you would buy the next book, which was already out or the whatever. So somebody who had maybe 10 books out, one of them would be for free. And then you'd go and buy the next one. Didn't quite work that way. And also... All of these um, uh, companies, I guess Amazon does the same thing. They actually are able to tell if somebody who takes the book opens it. And there's a dramatic drop between the number of people who download the book and the people who actually open the file. It's a huge drop. And then from there, how many of those people who opened the file read anything at all, like at the beginning of the book, a chapter even, another plunge downward? The bottom line is by the time you get to the people that have read the entire book, you can count them on one hand. And how many people of those people that have bought a book after that? Very few. We're talking less than a handful. So, you know, it fits what you're saying about the music industry. It's it's really hard to promote because you don't know what works. You don't know what doesn't work. I guess the good thing about giving away books is if you are a good enough writer that your work should be read and will be read, then people will remember your name if they open your book and read it. So, yeah. Well, we do know that that you have staying power. You've been doing this for decades, and you have such classics as the Gothic Bible out there. I mean, I think that's very significant. I remember seeing that and thinking, well, that's just fantastic. You know, as as a Robert Smith-haired little skellywag running off the sanctuary in Toronto. Um, but in... In terms of let's let's look at public appearances and travel as a writer, you've attended a lot of conventions, made public appearances, done signings. You were recently in Los Angeles with Lisa Morton and the crew doing a signing over there. Um, what are the benefits for a writer to attending conventions or even an aspiring writer that wants to start networking? Is that is that somewhere they should go? Is that somewhere that's going to benefit them in some way? Absolutely. A convention is for that purpose. Uh, You're not really, people don't come to conventions who are not writers, editors, agents, publishers. That's who they're in your particular realms. If you're a horror writer, you go to um, either World Horror Convention or StokerCon, which is just starting this year. That's the HWA's um, convention. They're starting their own this year. So that that will be be in Las Vegas at the Flamingo in May. Yeah. And, it, you know, if you're a romance writer, you go to the romance conventions. Um, you know, the, the Boucher Con is one for the mystery writers. There are several for mystery writers. There's all kinds of conventions, but it's where you do network to gain access to editors that are editing anthologies, editors that work for publishing houses. You can contact those people. They're there. They're sitting on panels. Go to the panels, listen to them talk, talk to them afterwards. I have this story. Would you be interested in having a look for the anthology you mentioned? Stuff like that. You know, that works. That I know works person to person. Uh, A lot of the traveling that I, I have done last year, for example, was not particularly at conventions, although I did go to three. But I last year I traveled on 12 different trips for Nevermore all over the place. And the last one was in L.A. for the big signing there with um, some of the major writers that were in it. R.C. Matheson, um, who you all probably know, he's the son of Richard Matheson. And he's a writer in his own right for film and television books. He's got a lot of stuff. Christopher Rice, who is Anne Rice's son, he's got a lot of books in the mystery field and several in the 
Sahara field. He was up for Stoker, I think, last year it was or the year before. And uh, people like that. Nancy Holder, she was there. Um, gosh, so many people. I've forgotten them all. But, uh, yeah, there's a, a lot of people. Chelsea Queen Yarbrough, she wasn't there, but she's in the book. Um all of those people are in Nevermore. And uh, so it, it's it's not just worth it, but it's also important to go and connect with those people and connect with Dell and Sue, who run Dark Delicacies, one of the two, I believe, independent horror bookstores left in the U.S. They have a huge store there in Burbank, and that's where the signing was. And so they, they were kindly hosting the signing. And so we had a lot of people come in and a lot of people buy books. And to my astonishment, a lot of people would buy two and three copies. It's pretty amazing there in the U.S. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, so I, we did that. Uh, my co-editor didn't go on that trip, but we did other things. We went to the Poe Museum in uh, Richmond, Virginia, one of the large Poe museums there. They have a really extensive collection of Poe memorabilia and his books and things like that. And they hosted us um, giving a reading in the garden uh, and people that were, they have a list of um, uh, people that, you know, come to their events. And we were there on the anniversary of Poe's death. So, uh, so that was nice to do that sort of thing. We've done bookstores. We did, uh, signings at conventions. We've done a whole lot of things last year. I think all of it, it filters in. I, I can't say honestly whether the time and the energy and the money uh, proved to be um, valuable in terms of sales. I honestly don't know. I mean, many places we went, there were big sales. Other places we went, there were some sales. You know, we did some bookstores in Toronto. Um, one was better than the other. It just depends, you know, and um so I don't know. I can't tell what's what with anything at all. I mean, I haven't seen the statistics yet of the sales. Um, I'm supposed to get some kind of paper on that in January. Well, it's the end of January, now into February. So I have to get on to that uh, from the publisher and find out, you know, what exactly has sold. And, of course, this is the book business. So you don't really even find out what is sold for a really long time because it still works in this crazy system where a store will – take books and they put them in their shelves and keep them there for whatever period of time they determine they want to. And then at some point they gather what's left and send them back. And those returns are returns against the number that they took. So it's not like you can say store X took 100 copies. So we must've sold 100 copies in mm-hmm. store X. Doesn't work that way. Star X might return 50 of them or 75 or 10. Who knows? You don't know until they get around to returning what they don't want. So um, so it's a really hard business in that way, too. And it, people have slammed that um, way of being with books for a long, long time. They've said how unrealistic it is. It's not, no other business operates that way. But at the same time, this allows stores to take writers that they don't know, writers who are not best-selling authors, and take those books into the stores because there's no obligation on them to pay for those books. They take them in, whatever, let's say they take 10 copies, uh, and maybe they sell eight, and they can return two free of charge so they don't have to pay for the return, and that's the publisher pays for that, and uh, and and then they get credit for those two books. So they're only keeping, they basically keep what they sell, and it allows them to take in 
authors that they don't know or new writers or somebody that, you know, just uh, that the sales rep for that particular publisher says, this is going to be a good book or this is going to be a good person. So, you know, it works both ways. You know, you can see it from two sides. It gives people a chance at the same time. It's a crappy system. So I, well, I, I do think that the more that I uh, speak with people about publishing, the act of writing, expectations, it's it's certainly not like it used to be. And everyone's looking for a different way of doing things, whether that be publishing on Wattpad, independently publishing, working with a publisher and seeing where you can go. So I, I think we're a couple of years off from where we're going to see what the publishing industry looks like in the future. Probably true. <laughs> but while we're, while we're talking about travel, going to conventions, you've been all over. You've, you've been in Mexico and Italy. If people go to your website, they'll see some of your travels there and where you've pulled... Um, inspiration from some dark places that you've been to but you landed in montreal which i've always found a very sexual city with a very gothic sensibility in terms of the appreciation of of the art the erotic the dark was that a conscious decision was it because montreal offered something different than other cities that you've been in or does it inspire you well, <laughs> it's probably more basic than that. My marriage ended. I lived in Toronto. So I was kind of looking for some place to go that was not in Toronto. And people and, from uh, Toronto always end up going to Montreal, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, a number of things happened that drew me here. I, I've always liked this city because it's really a beautiful city. It's easy visually and it's easy emotionally on you because of that. Um, even though there are these languages issues that you you know everybody reads about and gets really incensed about and people here live with them much better than people outside would you know react to them um it, people tend to be a lot more accepting of an individual here one-to-one just because no one knows what language anybody speaks it could be french it could be english it could be polish who knows so you know people really do you know try to be accepting in that way um so i have found it that way i haven't found any problems for myself because of language and i am not a good French speaker. I'm a stupid French speaker. I've tried many, many times. I've taken probably seven or eight French 101 classes and, you know, and, and wouldn't go to French 102 until they pushed me into the next class. And, you know, I just, I, I'm not good at it. I can read French. I can kind of understand when people talk if they're not speaking too rapidly, but to actually put sentences together, I can't do it, which you think for writers, language would be a snap, but my own is, but not, not <laughs> language. So, yeah, I like it here. Um, it It is a very artistic city. This is a place music-wise, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of music happens here. It's really innovative, really. Um, you get bands like Arcade Fire coming out of Montreal. There's a lot of things happening here um, that that are different and interesting. And there's a lot of venues that allow this kind of um, experimentation, I guess, if you will. So I do like it in that way. It's a, a slower city than Toronto and it's more laid back, easygoing. Um, you know, my example is you can always come here and you can sit in any cafe for three hours over the same cup of coffee. No one asks you to leave or gives you a dirty look. So that's not Toronto, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I don't know. For me, it works. And uh, But I'm a writer. You know, I could be on a train. I could be anywhere in the world. And it's all in my head. None of it is. The external isn't so important to me as long as I have some materials to write with, either a 
computer or paper and pencil or something. I have, you know, it's inside me because I tend to live interiorly, interiorly. Is that a word? Anyway. It it uh, could be. You could be making it right now. That's fine. (laughs) So, yeah. So for me, it works. And uh, there's not a lot here in terms of um, horror writers, that's for sure. Um, There's one or two French writers that do darkish material. Uh, noir material, I guess I'd call it, uh, more than, you know, horror. Um, yeah, and there's, you know, people who were here in the past kind of moved away, too. So there's not a whole lot. I don't have any connections here in terms of other writers. Um, I, I am part of the Ontario uh, branch of the HWA. I'm kind of the, you know, extended Ontario that goes into Quebec. <laughs> Wait, well, we'll call you Le HWA. That'll work. Uh, HWA. <laughs> So, you know, I and I don't get in for meetings because I just don't get there that often. But every once in a while, I pop in for a meeting. And certainly around the uh, Fan Expo every year, there's the, you know, the HWA kind of dinner at the, the pub. And I, I get there for that. I really like that because it gives me a chance to hook up with other people, just like the horror conventions do. You know, they're, it's it's you fall into this kind of, oh, my God, these are my people kind of thing. It's just easy to be around people who you don't have to explain. You don't have to describe. Everybody understands what it's about. So you're just talking to somebody who's in your realm, your peers. And it's great. And I really enjoy that. So and I enjoy the conventions as well. I will say as as a relative outsider until recently, because I, I joined the HWA um, as, as a non-writing member, I, I have not published anything in horror, although I've published in other fields, and it's incredible how little competition there is and how much support there is. So I, I will say as a community, you know, you may not be a bestseller, you may not be out there, you know, getting as many books sold as you want. Uh, but the amount of support and mentorship offered by the members is incredible. So it's it's a wonderful community. Now, before we sign off, I wanted to talk to you about your preferred vehicle for writing. Because recently I saw online that you're a pen thief. So I'm not... <laughs> I'm not sure if you prefer writing on a laptop, a desktop, in the library. But I do know that you have... Uh, a veritable coven of pens in your purse. So can you speak a little bit to that? Do you prefer to put pen to paper and that's why you're surrounded by all these pens? No, and I wish I did. <laughs> I wish I was like the Robertson Davies type that, you know, wrote novels by hand with pen and paper. I can't do that. You know, there are many writers that do, but there's many more that don't. Um, I think at the same pace as I type on a computer, it's very interesting. Of course, in my early days when I was young, really young, I used to type on a um like a typewriter, right? And uh I was always out thinking the typewriter, but when computers came around, and especially as they started to get more powerful and quick, uh, what I discovered is that my thought processes, my thoughts move as fast as the computer typing moves. So I'm really in sync with computers. Um, so that works for me. So no, I don't need a pen for that. I need a pen occasionally. And I like to have them handy. You have to sign things. You have to sign contracts. You have to sign uh, bills. You have to sign this and that. You know. And I like a really nice pen. I like a thin pen, like I said online. I like a, a pen with a smooth flow of ink coming out of it, out of the nib. I like all those things about pens. So I have a real pen fetish. And what I said on Facebook, I will repeat, even though the police will come to my door. When I go to a restaurant, when I go to a hotel, 
For example, in a restaurant, if I have to sign a bill like you still do in the U.S., they don't have the machines we have yet, so you have to sign your bill, right? Uh, They bring a pen to your table. And if it's a really nice pen, I ask them if I can keep it. And they always say yes, because, you know, people feel like a pen or she crazy, whatever. So, but if they go away and they don't come back, I will actually search in my purse for a pen that I'm kind of tired with, and then I'll exchange it for that really nice pen. So I'll leave them the pen that still works. It still has ink in it and everything, but I take the pen that's the new pen. So I have a lot of really beautiful pens that I love the writing. I love the feel of them in my hand. And yeah, I don't know. I think that just, you know, any writer really loves pens. This is just the way it is. It's almost symbolic in a way. It is. The, the <laughs> pen's a symbol of the craft that we <laughs> that we maybe don't use as much. I mean, my handwriting is illegible most of the time to me. <laughs> oh, mine too. I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> so, so now in closing, uh, there's there's a couple of housekeeping notes that I want to get to. You have a graphic novel coming out this month, February. Yeah, I do. It's uh, just a couple weeks it'll be out. And this is a long time coming. It's called Vampire uh, Nancy Kilpatrick's Vampire Theater. It's based on three stories that I wrote, oh gosh, back in the early 90s. That publisher of the of the comic book uh, world, it was Brainstorm Comics, they had a number of series. They came to me and asked me if I would translate those stories into comics, which I did, which they published. And then the publisher wanted to do a graphic novel. That was back in the 90s. Well, here it is, <laughs> 2016. And just last year, he came to me and he said, I'm finally ready. This is about the fourth or fifth time I'd heard this over the years. I said, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's finally coming out. So, um, yeah, all the proofs have been checked. They're, they're at the printer. They're coming. And I signed some uh, things. for. The, there's a hardcover version and a softcover version. So this month, yay, finally. Now, if people want to find that, uh, where where can they look for that? Will that be advertised on your website and your feeds? Uh, yes, I was actually talking to the publisher, and there is going to be some kind of an online book launch, but um, he doesn't know when yet. So uh, basically anybody who comes to my – if you want to friend me on Facebook, that would probably be the easiest way. I'm just – there's a few Nancy Kilpatricks, but I'm pretty much the, the writer one. Um, and I'm also on Twitter as Nancy K. Writer. So you can find me there too. And my, like I said, my website is not very up to date. It's, I think it's three years out of date, three anthologies out of date and a collection <laughs> other than that. <laughs> yeah. So, so that um, graphic novel is coming. Uh, I've got a lot of short stories uh, coming through the pipeline as well. I do a lot of, been doing a lot of um, Lovecraft stories for the last couple of years for some reason. So I've got a few of those coming out. One book that just came out was that not a Lovecraft called Kolchak. You know, remember Kolchak from the TV show, right? Mm -hmm. The Night Stalker. And it's called Passages of the Macabre. So it's all stories that uh, feature the character Kolchak. And so I have a story in that. That's just out, just like two weeks ago. So yeah, so there's a lot going on. And um, yeah, that's me. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for coming on the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast. People can find you online at nancykilpatrick.com, on Facebook, and on Twitter, as you mentioned. Uh, we will be bidding you uh, au revoir from Montreal, but I'm sure that you'll be on the podcast again. And, uh, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was fun. Thanks a lot for having me, Andrew. À la prochaine. <laughs> à la prochaine. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks for joining us, and remember, you can download a new podcast every Monday. To connect with the HWA Ontario chapter or become a member, visit lovehorror.biz backslash HWA backslash. 
For more on Nancy Kilpatrick, visit her online as www.sff.net backslash people backslash N-A-N-C-Y-K backslash. And if you want to come and see us in person, in the flesh, as it were, you can see us at the HWA booth at March Comic Con in Toronto, Ontario, at the Toronto Convention Centre from March 18th to 20th. And if you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror and are in Toronto from April 29th to May 1st, you may see a number of us on panels or schmoozing at the parties. And of course, do not forget to come to Las Vegas May 12th to 15th for StokerCon and the Horror University, as well as the Bram Stoker Awards Ceremony, to find out what is the best in horror this year. So come on out and let's hope to see you at some horror conventions. Join us next week for part two of our discussion on women in horror and an interview with Stoker Award-winning author Lisa Manetti. Until next time, keep your crypts clean and your bodies buried. <laughs>